0: Episode 430 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. None of that naked wine's crap for us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here, including those about naked wine, do not reflect the opinions of our firms, our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, two relatively new faces or voices at least, Chini Sharma, who's a scholar in residence at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law and a lecturer at the UT Austin School of Law. Chini, welcome. This is your first time on, right?
1: It is. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: We're glad to have you. And Adam Klein, who was only on to be roasted in an interview, if I remember right, who is now a V director of the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the UT Austin School of Law. So Adam, welcome back. Now you get to mix it up much, much more informally. So we're glad to have you.
2: Great to be here.
0: Okay. And back by popular demand, of course, Nick Weaver from Berkeley and Chief Mad Scientist at Scary Technologies. Nick, we're grateful to have you back.
3: Yep. Although remember, Ixi, I'm glad I'm not with Berkeley right now because I don't want to be crossing picket lines.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. I guess since it's kind of after the election, even though we don't actually have a, don't even know who is going to be running the House, although we've got pretty good guests. We got to talk about the election first. And, you know, it's looking like we're going to have maybe a one vote, two vote, three vote majority for the Republicans in the House. There's a big difference between one and three, in my view, because with one, if somebody gets sick and you have a by-election, everybody stops and holds their breath, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, is spent in that one district while everybody's trying to flip the, the House. So having two or three would be very useful. I am also kind of, and Adam, I'm going to ask you your thoughts on this. I think it makes it very hard to be the Speaker of the House and very hard to run the kind of Speaker's office that we've seen really since maybe Newt Gingrich, which is very Speaker-dominant House. Before that, it was a committee chairman-dominant House. And I think when you can't afford to lose three votes when you're running for Speaker, you've got to be very cautious about doing anything that will make anybody angry.
2: Well, and we've eroded the norm of the all-powerful speaker over several decades now with a series of moves and related to things like committee assignments, the experiment in getting rid of earmarks, the general erosion of party control and things like campaign finance. And the sum total of this is that party leaders have it much more difficult than they used to in the good or bad old days, depending on how you see it. In keeping their members I think so alive. I
0: mean I recognize if you go back to 1900 the speakers ruled but I think Nancy Pelosi is is, is much stronger than the Democratic speakers of the 60s and 70s don't you
2: Well, I mean, if you look at Tip O'Neill and uh, many of the speakers in the pre-Gingrich era, the era of the old bulls, there was a degree of centralized control. There were consequences for defying LBJ as majority leader, for example, that we all know. Uh, That era (laughs) (laughs) has come and gone. What
0: do you think this means for how the House is going to run then? Let's assume it's a very narrowly divided House, but the Republicans are in charge. What are they going to do and how's it going to work?
2: The question, I think, is what is each house going to do? And the answer, I think, is that each house is going to do what it can do. And so we're going to have a Democratic Senate and the Senate, of course, can do nominations. And so I think we will see the Senate doing nominations, especially judicial nominations. What can the House do? The House can do investigations. And I think what we're going to see is the House doing a lot of investigations. That's the one thing that the entire Republican conference will be able to get behind. Now notice what I didn't mention. I didn't mention legislation. And I think nobody right. expects much legislation. That's normal for a period of divided government. But that does create a really big concern for the one piece of important national security legislation that absolutely has to happen next year and for which there is no substitute, which is the potential reauthorization of Section 702 of the, uh, and the FISA Amendments Act.
0: Yep, I, uh, that is, is the biggest worry we have. And it turns out, that the worst mistake people have made in the national security community is assuming that they could get through an endless series of sunset crises. Maybe that was true, you know, in an era when you had a lot of bipartisan support for certain kinds of things, including national security. Now everything is partisan, including Section 702 and intelligence. And The likelihood that you can get people to agree to pass this, especially if you need bipartisan support, and I think you do, it's really, you know, putting an important capability like this at the mercy of the latest QAnon conspiracy theory is just
2: crazy we have to remember the sunset doesn't arise out of nowhere. It's always been the price of getting these things reauthorized. And so it's there for a reason, not to say that it's convenient or necessarily always a good idea, but that's why these sunsets exist. We have to remember the phrase, it can't possibly happen because it's too important, no longer has any purchase in our politics. We should have learned that after sequestration, when the thing was designed to be so painful that Congress could not possibly let those cuts go into effect. And of course they did. And then in 2020, we saw the three Patriot Act authorities sunset. The first example that I can think of of a significant national security tool sunsetting in the post 9-11 era, times have changed. And anyone who thinks that this sunset can't possibly happen because Section 702 is too important, and it is, is deluding themselves. This is a red alert crisis for the national security bureaucracy. And I, for one, am very concerned that we might be headed, to, to pick another metaphor here, be headed towards the iceberg. So I think we need to be sounding the alarm now and thinking about what we can do to avert that catastrophe.
0: So I have been thinking about this, and I know you have too, which is, first, we have a long series of kind of modest compromises with the civil liberties left as these renewals have gone forward, designed to reassure people that uh, rights aren't going to be intruded upon. But now the opposition is going to come from the right. And the intelligence community has earned a lot of that with some pretty boneheaded decisions over the last five years. And so it, it seems to me one way to persuade a substantial number of republicans who are mostly still pretty national security minded to renew 702 is to give them some things that allow them to say to people who raise questions about the deep state and intelligence politicization that they've come up with measures to address those concerns and i'm i've got my ideas but i think you've got some ideas about what could be in a bill that renews 702 and also addresses either real or potentially real problems that relate back to the last five years of history between the Republican Party and the intelligence community?
2: I think there are, just zooming out a little bit, I think there are three big headings here that need to be addressed to get this across the line. The first is trust. Getting people to trust the intentions of people in the opposite party who have the power potentially to conduct intrusive surveillance programs. And we have a deficit of trust, some of it arising from things inside the FISA archipelago, like the Carter Page and Crossfire Hurricane saga. Some of it arising from other hotly political controversies that we all know about, some of which you've discussed on past episodes. And trust starts with communication. It starts with contact, regular contract, and showing people that you understand their concerns and take them seriously. And so communication and trust, unfortunately, I fear we're moving in the wrong direction. We've seen various of these hotly politicized controversies that keep popping up over the past few months. And so we need to start rebuilding that trust that needs to start with communication from the administration to the people on the Hill who are going to be asked to get this across the line but also more broadly signaling that these concerns are heard and understood and taken seriously, even if all of the details are not necessarily subject to agreement. The second is the purpose. Why are we doing this? Why do we think this program is important? The case thus far in past authorizations has always been CT, counterterrorism. And counterterrorism, of course, is still very important. It is the primary publicly acknowledged purpose for which 702 collection is authorized, but the government has also said that there are other purposes, and I think it's important for the administration and the intelligence community to think about what is going to be most persuasive to people on the Hill, and can we talk about some of those things in addition to the traditional CT-based arguments. And then the third is trade-offs, and legislation is always about trade-offs. It always comes down to deal-making. Now, people in the bureaucracy are always very reluctant to even consider these things and put them on the table. And so they always start with the hard bargaining position of a clean reauthorization. We're not going to talk about any of these other things. We're not going to reopen all of FISA. And unfortunately, I fear that if you come in with that position starting out, you may wind up in a jam where at the last minute you realize there are not the votes for clean reauthorization. There's not the political backing, the political momentum. You're going to be asking Kevin McCarthy to whip Republican votes for this thing You need to give him something that he can take to his members who are very upset. And Republican trust in the FBI especially has declined precipitously over the years. There needs to be something to get those people, those potentially gettable votes on board. And so I would encourage people in the administration and the bureaucracy to start thinking about what types of trades could be palatable. Could we accept? And I think it's important to note that we have made some concessions just not to Americans. We've made a number of significant concessions (laughs) to Europeans. And so if we're willing to do that, we should certainly be willing to make similar modest concessions to Americans. In order to keep potentially our most important intelligence authority.
0: Yeah, in fact, right these days, I, it's you're better off being a European if you think you were uh, uh, overheard by NSA or spied on by CIA uh, than being an American. Maybe that's not that's that's yes. an exaggeration. But I, the we'll talk about this at the end. But there is a you know the, what I call the Euro appeasement court now has a set of rules, and I want to talk to you about that. So I agree with you completely, and I am starting to beat the drums for this. For what amounts to a politicization of the intelligence bill of rights, because I think you're going to need to advertise it, and you're going to need to get a bunch of people. You won't get everybody on board. The trick is, can you get people on board for depoliticization measures that are not viewed on the left as validating conspiracy theories? It's going to be a tough line to walk, but I think it's it's possible. And I agree with you. The intelligence community is going to want to say we want a clean authorization. There is no hope of a clean authorization so they're going to have to make that assessment very quickly okay i the other thing about the election that i just wanted to bring up is uh, election interference what happened? There wasn't any. The head of CISA at DHS says, uh, I was encouraged by the lack of activity in election interference. Uh, meanwhile, the guy who runs the Wagner Company and the IRA and does you know, all of Putin's dirty work in the private sector, Pregosan, says, uh, yes, gentlemen, we interfered in your election. We are interfering and we will interfere. I think this is mutually reinforcing BS. I don't think that... There's ever been a successful Russian or Chinese interference in our election, with the exception of hacking Hillary Clinton's or the DNC's emails, which was, you know, election interference, but not, you know, uh, getting in and screwing with the electoral rules. I just, I think that's a low payoff, high risk uh, effort. And that's why we haven't seen it. And we've been talking about hobgoblins and Y2K here. There's, and then congratulating ourselves that we kept the hobgoblins and Y2K away. I just think this is, this is theater, security theater of a kind. So that's my take on that. Anybody who wants to disagree is free to. Otherwise, I'm going to move on to the other big stories because we got plenty of them. FTX, big crypto exchange. Nick, it has collapsed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I can't help myself. So what happened is FTX is not one company. FTX is a conglomerate of at least 134 corporate entities controlled by Sam Bankman-Fried, a.k.a. SBF, or was. So, and, and as a
0: Berkeley graduate, aren't you obliged to point out that both of his parents are Stanford Law School professors?
3: Yes, but he got our revenge because it is Berkeley that plays at uh, FTX Field. Despite my warning to the athletic department that this was a bad idea. I think by the time the Stanford big game hits uh, next week, it'll be renamed Spirit Halloween Field. So FTX had several big components. The two biggest being the FTX Exchange, which is not the US Exchange. The US Exchange is a different company, West Shire Limited LLC, and Alameda Research, which was a hedge fund. Now, Alameda Research is not a very good hedge fund. And so what was happening is FTX, the exchange, which was supposed to be custodying customer assets, not lending them out, was lending them out to Alameda Research, which was then losing money because it was a badly run hedge fund. And it turns out there's a somewhere between six to $10 billion hole in the balance sheet. So on
0: the third... So it just, it just starts to stop you there. It takes a long time, I think, mostly, to lose $6 billion. So they must have seen this happening over time yes. and felt, felt the hot breath of disaster on Well, their partially,
3: power. they were papering it over by overinflating the value of their own tokens. So the FTX has its own token as an unregistered security slash customer loyalty card program that they were inflating as billions of dollars worth on Alameda's balance sheet. Now, what happened on the third is CoinDesk got a copy of Alameda's balance sheet reported on it and went, oh my bleep, this is ridiculously insolvent. Fourth and fifth, it was SBF. nothing to see here. This doesn't affect FTX's balance sheet. It's perfectly fine. People at FTX, however, start taking their money out, get a classic bank run on something that was not actually supposed to be a bank, yeah. but was by the eighth, there'll be an FTX rescue plan. The ninth, no there would be, there's an eight million million dollar or eight million dollar hole here. SBF going, oh, uh, it's all my fault, but everything's fine, it's gonna be okay. Oh, and FTX US, you're all okay, you're a separate company, don't worry. Just to be clear, Um, SBF
0: is Sam Bankman-free, not a company.
3: And then on the 11th, declared bankruptcy on 134 corporate entities, including FTX US. So all the people who looked at the Larry David ad from the Super Bowl or Tom Brady or the Miami Heats Arena and put their money in FTX US, they suddenly find... They are unsecured creditors in a chapter 11.
0: Ah, uh, so that's won't the, that's see a the dime problem. For yeah. months okay. or years. So they, and, they, they were hev- more heavily regulated and supposedly should but have been they immune. Work. That's yeah.
3: the problem. That what really needs to happen is a very small act of Congress, a four or five page bill. And the terms of the bill are simple. If you're a cryptocurrency exchange, you have three choices. Either you become registered as a broker dealer, which means you're under SEC authority, FINRA, and you have to have SIPC insurance, or you limit yourself to accredited investors only, in which case nobody bothers, or you get shut down. And this needs to happen now because there are other cryptocurrency exchanges that this can happen to. So in fact, Coinbase's SEC filings specifically say a risk to customers is if Coinbase goes bankrupt, customers are unsecured creditors and lose all their money potentially.
0: So criminal prosecutors are circling already, I assume.
3: Yes. Sam Bankman-Fried has basically resigned and is currently in the Bahamas, currently a not really able to leave the country position. There were rumors he wanted to flee to Dubai, but there's a problem with fleeing to a non-extradition country. You have to flee to a place where you haven't pissed off somebody who counts or pissed off a countable number of someone's.
0: And And, with this amount of money, it's kind of hard to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's basically no place on the earth earth that he doesn't risk prosecution so we lost bitcoin dropped another 20 percent from it's relatively low level already and i'm assuming part of that is there are more shoes to drop this in some respects this shoe is just from the dropping from the three arrows insolvency and we're just going to see people who thought they had Secure at all of their funds by getting debt or assets from these big companies who now are gone are suddenly discovering that they're going to have trouble making it too. So we're going to we, we, since there's not a lot of
3: and in particular, cryptocurrency is not valid collateral. You are never truly over collateralized on a cryptocurrency, and there's a lot of debt outstanding. And there's probably other exchanges that have been doing the same thing of being banks instead of being exchanges. So there have been rumors of a attempt to start a bank run at crypto.com because, Mm -hmm. hey, why not? If you actually have any cryptocurrency at any cryptocurrency exchange or money at any cryptocurrency exchange, you really should withdraw it now because they shouldn't be vulnerable to bank runs, but they are. And that means you've got to be the first in line. And so crypto.com is looking kind of scary. there are rumors going around about all these exchanges doing attestations of assets but moving around this huge blob of ethereum in the process so crypto does an assetation and then different one doesn't <laughs> so
0: you say you, you pass the ball and say hey I've got you know 500 million dollars or five billion Billion dollars worth of assets right now, and then you hand it to the next guy. Yes, <laughs> he and, says that's what I've got.
3: <laughs> and in fact, this is one of the reasons why I say that cryptocurrency is speed running half a millennia of various financial failures. That's not a new scam. During the wildcat bank era, there would be barrels of silver and or gold going to the different bank branches just ahead of the state inspectors.
0: Yeah. Okay. I look. I. I, I For sure, this is going to be a major blow to the enthusiasm people have for cryptocurrency and to the effort to get light touch regulation through. We'll see. But I think this will change the climate. And, you know, I hate to indulge you in yet another blah, but what do you think of Twitter?
3: (laughs) It's actually no longer fun. Okay, it's still hilarious, but it's, it's going to be chapter 11
0: in the next year. It does. It, it feel, and you know, that led me to ask the question, is there any way in which that is good for Elon Musk? And I just don't see no. that it is. Yeah.
3: The, what happened is, let's be honest, Elon Musk is not very smart. He's very rich and very lucky, but let's just say he got <laughs> high on his own supply. And so back in March, April, he was making noises at Twitter and said, okay, I'll buy you for fifty-four twenty a share. Ha, ha, ha. And the Twitter board goes, okay, we have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders. This is a huge premium already. Here you go. Here's a contract with specific performance that basically gave Elon Musk no outs, but to buy Twitter. And 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 I wanna
0: wanna defend him a little, especially since the 5420 was obviously a homage to our episode 420. It wasn't a terrible price. It was a little bit overpriced at 5420 when he made that offer, but everything collapsed after he made the offer.
3: Well, partially it's that everything was collapsing. Partially it's that that was clearly an overvalued price. And partially he spent the next six months trashing Twitter, yeah. trying to get out of the deal and failing, yeah. which of course actually made it worse because he could have probably gotten out of the deal if you go to the board of Twitter and say, I want out of the deal for the delta between fifty four or 20 and what the price is now.
0: I think you're right. And the other thing that's interesting about this is Twitter's not going to collapse because 42 liberals leave and go to Mastodon. But it it doesn't really depend on you know no, how many fact, people stay. It's all about the advertisers. And he really fact, does seem to have lost a lot of advertisers' confidence too.
3: Well, it's that he's actually gutted the parts of the company that count. So, apparently he fired like 80% of the site reliability engineering team. And we can see that because various things on Twitter are just breaking for a while, like the two-factor authentication or the alerts. He's not listening to people who know what they're talking about. So he was going, we'll make Twitter blue a subscription and give you a blue check for eight bucks. And everybody goes, no, you bleeping idiot. You don't want to do that. Right. He goes ahead and does it anyway to have basically anybody who can attest to the FTC consent decree quit and has to roll it back within a day because the inevitable happened. And we had fake Donald Trumps. We had a fake George W. Bush complaining about how he misses killing Iraqis. You had a fake Eli Lilly going, okay, insulin should be free. So
0: I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna to bring it back a little to the law in cyber law. I am gonna make the, this observation. I think it turns out that Elon manages like a lawyer in this respect. I used to say that lawyers are not good managers by and large. Most companies try to ask their employees to do what their employees can do and find things that their employees can do that is useful to the company. The law firm management and most lawyer management is to take a bunch of highly motivated, pretty talented people, point them at a 12 foot wall and say, if you can't get over that, you're a failure. And then just to walk around to the other side of the wall and keep the ones that make it over. And uh, and that seems to be his style. And it works, you know, works for law firms because you've got very motivated people and a relatively thin lean workforce but it doesn't work for big institutions you just end up de- demoralizing everybody so that's my theory is that we have learned his worked. style which is cut costs demand more and sometimes it works also but the other thing
3: is is he's seriously dunning Kruger? he does not know when he does not know something and he's unwilling and unable to be educated and you see it not just in twitter but in tesla Tesla is self-driving. They're just doing it backwards. Elon said, uh, we don't need uh radar. So we're not going to do later on our cars. Yeah. Look at the Cybertruck. By the time the Cybertruck hits the market, it's going to be dead because Ford is going to crush it like a monster truck with the lightning. All right. It's, he's really not smart and doesn't know when he doesn't know things. And, is unwilling to listen to people going, oh no, don't go urinating on the third rail here. And he urinates on the third rail anyway.
0: Okay. Well, as long as you keep shaking, it works out. But yeah, (laughs) speaking from experience. All right, uh, Chinny, let's go to the UK. The UK has announced that their equivalent of NSA is going to be scanning all the internet connected devices in the country to look for vulnerabilities. I can't, imagine what the reaction would be if we announced that we were going to do that here. And so I guess my question for you is, is this going to work? Is this going to produce value? (laughs) It's
1: a very good question. I thought it was interesting coming off of the debate about 702, especially with all of our international conversations about 702 and invasiveness of US intelligence strategies. This was Incredibly casually announced, the UK government's National Cybersecurity Center has a one-page summary with a Q&A and like three sentences per question talking about this. Um, but to kind of give some background on it, to the extent I understand it, it is a proposal to scan all internet accessible devices within the UK. That's not limited to UK citizens. That is all internet accessible devices within the UK. And what it hopes to do, it seems, is to create a holistic map of vulnerabilities across IoT devices to give the UK a better understanding of its cybersecurity posture. And the way it purports to do that is basically to regularly and continuously ping Every IoT device within the country to see whether or not there are certain pre identified critical vulnerabilities in that device.
0: Mostly because those devices will tell you something about what they're running because they need to if you want to connect to them. And then we have a list of problems with software that they might be running. And if they say, Yes, I'm running this, you can say, Uh oh, there's a problem here or could be a problem.
1: Right. I think that the way they're doing it is in my humble opinion, overkill. This is something that could be done by requiring vendors that sell these devices to do it in the first place. A lot of the pushback you get from demanding vendors to do this is they say that we no longer have control over whether these devices stay offline or not. We also need to get consent from our consumers that we're able to automatically push updates and patches down to those devices. I don't see how the UK government gets around that. I also think the amount of data they're collecting is huge. Essentially, regularly what they're going to do is ping the device and then recall the HTTP response after the handshake is done, any information about the device, the instance of the software that is running, and any vulnerability it might possess. But that's limited just to the page that is responded to. And that's not the only place vulnerabilities can exist in an IoT device. So it says that it's not going to collect IP addresses. But that's interesting, because you can opt out of this UK data collection by emailing this agency, a list of the IP addresses that you don't want them to track, which suggests that they do They do have the information about which IP addresses they are pinging regularly.
0: They must must know which ones they're pinging, but they might not keep the records that way. But yeah, I think, wasn't there somebody who had a, a sexting scandal who said, oh, we'll get rid of your pictures if you just send us a nude photo of yourself. I'm not familiar with that. But... <laughs> I kind of remember one of those. Ones. Yeah, that's that's the problem. I, saying, yeah, here's my IP address. Please don't collect my IP address. This is not a big seller. But as, and as Adam knows, the UK intelligence agencies have an enormous advantage over the US intelligence agencies in terms of the support they get from the establishment. There's, there is a rock solid support for intelligence. In, uh, in UK government circles. And, and they just won't have it when you start to say, well, we'd like to cripple your intelligence agencies because of a theoretical civil liberties problem. They'll just freeze you out. That's my theory, at least.
2: So we have a very different social context here, as we all well know. We rebelled. They didn't. We mistrust, <laughs> <That's true>. we <laughs> mistrust by default they trust by default. And so to NSA's credit, over the years, it has built up a very strong culture of we focus on foreign actors, we collect foreign intelligence, yes. we do not want to touch US persons. And that is a healthy defense mechanism against touching the proverbial third rail, which we've already mentioned once. And anything that erodes that within NSA should be be regarded with great skepticism. Obviously, that's that's not embedded over there, and they don't need that to preserve public trust the way NSA does.
0: Well, and it wouldn't even be, it wouldn't even be NSA doing it. It would be CSAD, DHS.
3: I think this is much more of a nothing burger story because this is what the private industries have been doing for years now. We actually have a cluster of machines at Berkeley that my colleagues use to basically scan the entire internet. We've done papers where it's scan the entire internet, tell us what we see on vulnerabilities. What surprises me is that the UK is doing it themselves and not just buying the service from consensus or um, well, and maybe
0: they will, right? Or they, 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 and just they say Shodan. they're doing it. They say they're doing it, but they could just be letting a contract.
1: Yeah, it seems like what they said was that they were going to be hosting it in house on UK cloud services, why? and they just just actually for, they provided the two IT addresses that they would be pinging from. So they like provided us with the source of their pings
3: and. That just seems kind of silly and duplicated of effort because they could write a check to consensus and get all that done for them for free, basically, or not for free, but for far less than they're going to pay to build it in house. And the
1: one they're building in house is going to use the same tools anyway. I mean, my, like, this is my two cents, and without much of a robust knowledge of, the UK government's practices of contracting with companies to do their services. But I mean, it seems to be consistent with the regime that has very little trust in the commercial sector and much more trust in the government that they would prefer to do it in-house rather than outsource those activities to a private company the way that we do here.
0: Hence the National Health Service. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about CISA because the Biden administration kind of announced a, uh, what I would guess I would describe it as a notice of proposed uh, thinking about the relationship between CISA and what it calls the sector risk management agencies, which are basically the regulatory agencies that usually regulate pipelines or power systems. And obviously that's a fraught relationship. Cheney, I, there's not much more than that in the announcement, but I think we've got a pretty good idea of the direction this is going to go.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to hear what you think the direction this is going to go. I think that I'm not sure to be honest. I think it's clear that they're trying to update PPD 21, but I think that they've tried to update the way in which they identify critical entities about three different times in the past. I think that this goes in line with the fact that they want to revisit how srmas are interacting with private sector industries within their purview srma being
0: the sector risk management agency yes sorry
1: apologies (laughs) to (laughs) the sector risk management agencies it seems right now they're focusing on agriculture and food they said that they might also want to focus on transportation and energy as well. Eventually, I think that it's going to go beyond that. CISA is the sector risk management agency for a lot of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors that CISA de- identifies. But historically, sector risk management agencies have been quite turfy. Useless?
0: Turfy <laughs> about this, yes. So this is our um, turf and we cho- we chose to choose to sit here and do not too much. <laughs>
1: yeah. And GAO reports, including one that came out in 2022, basically said that whatever frameworks we are proposing, whatever recommendations we are making, there is either no uptake or no data of whether there is an attempt at uptake. And I think my personal, not speaking for anyone else, stance is that this is because there has been a huge reliance on public-private partnerships, and that has not borne out in the private sector stepping up in the way that it seems the government wants it to.
0: Right, that's and how I see this. Like it
1: is different.
0: Yeah, it, it seems to me first patience for the private with the private sector on cybersecurity is wearing thin in this administration, and they're they're certainly going to require people, more people, to disclose incidents, security incidents, and the enthusiasm for using regulatory levers is at a high point for the last 20 years in this administration.
1: A lot of the coverage of this has also mentioned uh, Langvin's push for identifying the most important of the important entities. This echoes what the cybersecurity Solarium suggested when its report came out. This happened years ago with trying to identify Section 9 entities that were considered the most important of important entities. At that time, there was one line in the executive order that essentially said that no commercial information technology services could be identified as a Section 9 entity. So they've been wholesale excluded from however lax a lot of these regulations are, they are still excluded from that. So I'm curious if in the coming months... We revisit that and bring them back into scope.
0: Well, we could we could ask the people who are responsible for that because all of them are working in Silicon Valley now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think there's no doubt that that's that was a deal, and then you know it was a time when we were all in love with Silicon Valley, so it almost made sense, but it didn't, and it doesn't now. I think that's still at risk, and I also think that CISA's stock is pretty high in the administration if you read some of the past orders they hand over lots and lots of responsibilities to cisa and i think they will they, they in the end this will say you guys are going to have to follow more guidance from dhs cisa than you have up to now and they're going to start issuing coordinating standards. That's my hope. And I suspect that that will happen, but there'll be plenty of fights over that. The biggest fight is going to be with the FTC, which you know doesn't even think it's part of the administration until it needs political cover. And I, I just flagged the fact that there was an argument in the Supreme Court about a week ago, in which the justices were asked to opine on this question. If somebody thinks that the entire structure of the FTC is unconstitutional, and there's some very good arguments about why that might be so, do they really have to sit there and litigate for five years in front of an administrative law judge appointed by and paid by the FTC, and then appeal to the FTC to make that argument, futile as it will be, before they can go to a real court and make the constitutional argument. And it sounded like a majority of the courts was saying, why would why would we make them do that? That doesn't make any sense. I think that they're going to, the FTC and the independent agencies are going to lose that case. And then there's going to be cases brought very quickly against the FTC and the SEC and some of the other big independent organizations saying the whole thing has been a hundred year scam on the constitution in violation of the unitary executive theory, which is controversial, but I'm guessing not with five justices on this court. So FTC is going to be brought under greater executive supervision. If my theory on this is right, and it requires two Supreme Court decisions and they will then end up with, you know, much more aligned with the executive branch agencies as they should be on something like this. I mean, the idea that the FTC is our secure is a security agency makes no sense at all. So that's, that's my guess. All right, Europe. We haven't covered Europe yet. Sophie Intveld was a a woman I cross swords with a lot in Brussels when I was in government because she had all kinds of privacy attacks on the United States. I'm kind of glad, Adam, to see that she's attacking Europeans for a change. And she had a, a report out. What do you think of it?
2: I've waded through a lot of European Commission, European Parliament, European Court materials in my day, and typically they don't have a great deal of literary merit. But I will say I enjoyed reading this one, and I think there's a lot of value in here. The obvious headline is the thrashing it gives several European member states for their use of the Pegasus spyware, which of course we all know from the NSO saga. And it calls out Poland and Hungary with particular vigor for some of what it calls their illegitimate uses of this spyware to spy on political opposition, journalists, dissidents, and so forth. I think there are some other interesting broader takeaways, though. The first is it is refreshingly honest about the internal tensions within the European project. So you have the political reality that this is a union of member states that retain their own sovereignty, that have different interests that often butt up against each other. And on the other hand, you have these utopian aspirations of a democratic union of shared values. And what she says is that the spyware scandal mercilessly exposes the immaturity and weakness of the EU as a democratic entity. And I think that's quite telling. Now, we certainly shouldn't be celebrating that. I mean, the European project in many ways has been a good thing for the United States and for our grand strategy over the past 70 years. But these are the realities that often get buried in discussions about privacy across the Atlantic. Another thread that I want to pull is that she's actually surprisingly positive about the U.S. reaction to disclosures about spyware and really highlights the responsiveness that our system offers compared to the European system, which, of course, has fragmented authority to concerns about government surveillance. And this, of course, comes back to an irony that I know has been discussed a lot on this podcast, that in the context of surveillance, the U.S. through the series of Shrems cases is held to one standard which is the democratic utopian value standard that exists in European treaties, but that is not actually applied to European member states. And then meanwhile, we see a non-trivial number of European member states doing things like this, with very vague laws and ineffective controls covering their surveillance programs.
0: It shows that this business about privacy uh, vis-a-vis governments is not as simple as it seems when you're judging people from, you know, thousands of miles away.
2: Actually, I want to highlight the Spain case, right? The Poland and the Hungary cases maybe are a little bit easier to distinguish and are, are sort of clear outliers. The Spain case largely involves Catalan separatist leaders who were targeted with Pegasus, allegedly by the central government. And this is not new in the report. This has been covered widely in the press. And so this opens up an interesting question. Are these dissidents and political activists whom it's some kind of human rights violation to surveil against the European ideal? Or are these seditionists whom it is completely legitimate to surveil within the constitutional order of Spain? And this points to where you get quickly into very deep waters with these kind of questions, especially when you're trying to regulate them on a transnational level
0: yeah i and and i've always thought that we the our press has underplayed the extent to which catalan separatism is a Profound threat to Spanish patriotism and would be viewed as seditious. You know, if it were, if they, if we could only persuade the Catalan separatists to embrace, embrace QAnon, everybody here would understand that they're ex- insurrectionists and need to be surveilled to a fair. well. but until that happens, everybody says, "Oh, but it was so so much fun to be in Barcelona, so I <laughs> uh, I feel uh, good about the Catalan." Well, my my, uh, right. my
2: wife is from is an English speaker from Quebec, so she has no trouble understanding the dangers of separatism
0: oh yeah no that's right that's a that's a that's a tough tough road to hoe okay i actually thought the better story actually we should mention greece has its own the spyware political spyware thing so that makes by my count at least four european community members where they've caught the government spying on members of the opposite party nothing multiple, else.
2: multiple opposition parties in this case
0: yeah it if nothing else we ought to be able to work that into the intelligence depoliticization Bill of Rights that we're working on to, to bring the Republicans on side.
2: Yeah, I'd like, to, I mean, I'd like to add a little bit of texture here. Right? In Germany, which is a country that I've spent time in and know pretty well, what was the IFD, the which was the most numerous party in the opposition in the previous Bundestag and is still the second biggest party in the opposition, is actually under surveillance by the Verfassungsschutz, which is their internal security service there. For its ties to right-wing extremists. So you have one of the major opposition parties openly and through the authorized processes under surveillance by the Domestic Intelligence Service. And so the line between what is legitimate surveillance of political opposition, what is illegitimate surveillance of political opposition, sometimes gets a little fuzzy. And of course, I don't mean to impugn the German process. They have institutions for doing these things. There's a relatively wide degree of social consensus around that surveillance. But certainly this all turns on the constitutional order and how it's structured to deal with these questions. We should also remember that this isn't some kind of insane outlier that we as Americans are blessedly immune from. This is the norm. This is what you do with intelligence services absent appropriate guardrails. The first people you go after are the people who want to get you out of power. We had J. Edgar Hoover keeping his job for 50 years by shopping political intelligence not so subtly to various presidents and, of course, signaling to them that, hey, I might have some of this on you too. And so it's exceptional and we should celebrate the degree to which we've been able to tame that tendency. And we should also remember how fragile it is and how difficult it is to maintain these guardrails given how attractive these powers can be for people in power.
0: That's my speech to the Republicans. We need more protections against political uses of intelligence, because we haven't had to worry about that. And we do now. And uh, you're in an ideal position to pass that along with 702 renewal. All right, Bitcoin. The US seized 50,000 Bitcoins. It was $3 $3 billion when they seized it. It was $1 billion when they announced it. And it was about $800 million when FTX was done inflating the, the currency. Nick, any anything else to say about this? It was a remarkable a seizure. They, somebody's going to get a lot of really cool leather jackets out of this.
3: Yes. So as far as I can tell, it's actually different from a different seizure. So in November fifth, twenty twenty, there was a seizure of seventy thousand bitcoins from a individual X dealing with a successful hacker of Silk Road. But isn't, isn't I, that
0: that's not the same as James Zhang that uh, actually just no, goes- it is. Yeah,
3: it is. That looking again, dates on one of the stories are slightly different, but yes, this was
0: the, he, he kept it. Uh, he kept it under wraps for ten years didn't mm-hmm. move it was looking for ways to to get at it he thought it was under su- surveillance as it was and uh, i think uh, it got split there was a airdrop of some not non-reg- non-regular btc and he thought it was safe to spend that and it turned out it wasn't and then they raided his home and found a device buried under towels in the in the bathroom that uh, they were able to pull the bitcoin keys off of
2: This brings up a point that people don't appreciate. This stuff is not opaque. This is all visible on the blockchain. So if you steal billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, people are going to be watching that wallet for any twitch of movement for years and years and years. And it will be very, very difficult to off ramp that money. And we've seen this in multiple Bitcoin related heists now. So the question isn't how do we cope with this completely opaque type of movement of money? The question is what are all the interesting insights? that law enforcement and intelligence services can garner by watching these transparent and publicly visible immutable ledgers.
0: Yep. And if you, keep, if you keep it there long enough, you know, if James Zhang had not survived those 10 years, that money just is gone. Yep. Probably. Okay. A couple other things that I wanted to cover. There were some interesting papers out about disinformation. I'm not sure any of them is terrific. There's a Carnegie paper that does a dive on that. There was a good paper out by Yafa Shiraz on how many, how people who had divergent views, heterodox views on COVID-19 were suppressed and kind of personal stories about their uh, their experience. And it was, I have to say, pretty shocking. I think the COVID-19 speech suppression story is going to be one we're more and more embarrassed about. And uh, Adam, you had a paper over the summer about disinformation that I thought made a, a pretty important point about the effort to stamp it out.
2: Yeah, I think terms like disinformation, misinformation, we've got a new one, malinformation, which sometimes get rolled into the unlovely acronym MDM, which I encourage everyone to avoid like the plague, often obscure more than they reveal. It's much better to boil down to what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about foreign intelligence services and their agents sneaking around and working clandestinely to influence American life, to undermine our institutions, to spread propaganda under false pretenses? That is disinformation in the sense of active measures campaigns. That is something that our government should and must busy itself with. It has the tools to do that in the form of FISA and other authorities, and it's capable of doing so. It has the legitimacy to do so. Yes, go get them. Or are we talking about policing the truth and falsity of contentious areas of public debate? That's not something the government is well-suited to do. That's not something it has the legitimacy to do. Now, those two you would think, should be relatively easy, one good, one bad, you get into some interesting edge cases. And the problem with disinformation is that disinformation, in air quotes as a term, as a jargon word, is that it leads to linguistic slippage, where, for example, opinions that may align with the foreign powers' views get branded as foreign misinformation, and then get hounded out of the public square. And we may not like those opinions. We may not want our countrymen and women to espouse those opinions in some cases, but that is something that people absolutely have a First Amendment right to do. And we ultimately only harm ourselves if we impoverish our public debate about things like foreign policy, but also other issues, by hounding unpopular opinions, which are unpopular by association, out of the public square.
0: Yeah, I I think I want to spend a little time on MDM, because that is where you can actually see the slippage occurring. MDM is misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. And then when they define malinformation, you can see this in DHS materials on their website. Malinformation is designed; it's defined as things that are true but inconvenient for the authorities, or uh, words to that effect. But Basically, true facts used in a... a fashion that produces a bad outcome. And, you know, give me a break. <laughs> We've
2: seen CISA, which I think we all, we all like, we all want CISA to succeed at its cybersecurity mission, embracing this MDM jargon and, and spreading it. And I would just gently give them a friendly encouragement to treat that terrain very, very cautiously, because it does not enjoy the same degree of consensus public support as the core cybersecurity mission. And I want to close with a quote from George Orwell that I looked up, from the famous essay "Politics in the English Language," where he described pretentious diction used to dress up simple statements and give them an air of scientific impartiality. Yep let's stick to I, let's I, stick to simple statements and make sure that we all agree what we're talking about. Come on, George, That's can't you
0: reduce I, that to a to what, <laughs> like an acronym or something? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, and I, actually, I think this. Getting the intelligence community out of the disinformation business, except when we're talking about trying to police. Foreign efforts to seduce the American public is something that ought to be a legal principle. We have a
2: good word for that: active measures, influence campaigns. Let's stick to those to, the, to those terms that we know and understand. Yeah,
0: well, it, it was a Russian term. It was it uh <laughs> And and you know, unfortunately, it was too easy to translate it to disinformation. <laughs> okay, before we do some quick hits, Chinny, I wanted you to talk a little bit about a really interesting lawsuit that pulls together open source and copyright maximalism and artificial intelligence and class actions. Uh, What's going on with the co-pilot?
1: It's very fun. And I'll caveat this with, I am not an intellectual property lawyer, but I am an open source enthusiast, having been a former software programmer myself. I think important context to this entire discussion is that open source comes with two different types of licenses, generally, broadly speaking, copyleft and permissive. And what an issue here largely is a copyleft license. And what a copyleft license is, is it's called a viral license in that I might have an open source project and you might use that open source project, but. Whatever you put that open source project into, whether you copy it wholesale, use a portion of it, incorporate it into something much more complex, that now also has to be open source with a copyleft license.
0: Leading leading Whatever, Microsoft leading Microsoft at one point to say it's just like cancer. <laughs> exactly.
1: Like, it's not the best branding, but it's also well, not Well,
3: technically speaking it's closer to herpes, but <laughs>
0: Fair enough. You obviously have more fun coding than I did.
1: So GitHub is, I think at this point, the largest open source project host. It's owned by Microsoft. When that happened, it drew a lot of ire from parts of the open source community with concerns about corporate capture. That is kind of the background of what seems to be coming to a swell at this point. OpenAI is a separate nonprofit that was building something called Codex, which was a machine learning tool that used publicly available open source projects and code to train a machine that essentially put an autocomplete for code. So you like Google search and it predicts what you want. You start typing code, it predicts what you're trying to do there. GitHub then productized Codex as Copilot. It has since been shown to be a big revenue generator for GitHub. The fact that GitHub is making money off of other people's open source code feels bad to the open source ethos, but the class action lawsuit is a copyright suit. It's it's based on the fact that Copilot is producing code that is essentially a copy of the code that it was trained on without attaching the same copyleft license to it.
0: So people don't know that in theory they are they're getting herpes, or maybe they aren't. And so all of the carefully constructed uses of copyright to subvert copyright itself are lost. And people are going to start copywriting the code that they made. Cop they used Gobullet to to generate. So it you can see where it makes people angry because they put in this time and then they gave away their stuff, and now somebody else is making money off of
1: it. not a suit about money. I right. think it's open source. It's really about maintaining the power of a copyleft license. Yeah, And I think the extra strong argument on the side of the open source community is Copilot is advertised as not doing creative code. It's filling out your most basic functions that are pretty rote. And so it's understandable why somebody can take something that Copilot produces and then show that it is nearly exactly the same as some very boring code that they themselves wrote and open source.
0: Or, frankly, uh, stole from somebody else because there's a lot of that going around. Uh, yeah. The more boring, the more likely you are to say, oh, somebody must have done this before me. Uh, and so. But
1: it's really interesting it because is. right now, like generative AI is totally dependent, not totally dependent, Nick can disagree with me on this, is, I think, in many ways, just dependent on big data that pulls from publicly available information. And so how does this apply to things like DALI? The way you might distinguish that is the fact that the production, the outputs of DALI are transformative. They're very different than the inputs, whereas this feels very similar. Yeah.
3: Agree but disagree. And it's important to note that probably on DALI with some careful construction of training data, or I mean, of queries, you could extract almost unchanged the original training. Interesting. And what is happening on copilot is people are trying their not quite so boring code that they wrote and finding that it spits
1: out. So yeah, that's I it think- conveniently circumvents the copyleft license requirement. And it's not the same, but it feels, it dovetails nicely, I think, with the LinkedIn IQ decision that came out about just how does the world interact now with publicly available data? In that case, it was breach of contract here. It's copyright, but.
0: So there's.
3: And critically, the viral nature of the GPL, which is something that I deliberately try to avoid in my work would have the question is, if Copilot is trained on GPL code and therefore copyright, the output of Copilot would be GPL even for the parts that weren't in the input set. Yes, And so this would basically make Copilot truly a super spreader event in terms of (laughs) bad copyright on people's code.
0: Right. Yes, it, it does sound to me as though this is the kind of thing, if it were just money, you could find a solution. But if it, it given the ideological certainty of the copyleft movement, it's going to be very hard to, to resolve this without a very clean and clear decision by the courts. And frankly, I kind of think the people who think it's copyrighted have a slightly better argument, right? It it is at the end of the day, it just read all this code and now it's spitting it back at you. And if it's the same code that it read, you know, it's copying. Okay, well, that will be bad news for that style of machine learning for sure. But good news about AI, they can't get copyright, they can't get uh, patents, but they can infringe. And that would be, you know, a step toward, you know, a human agency. All right, quick hits. The nuclear engineer and his wife, who decided to get into the espionage business selling nuclear secrets wrapped in a peanut butter sandwich, have been... Sentenced to just about 20 years each. The wife got a slightly longer sentence because she was, I thought, pretty clearly the more aggressive enthusiast, And but they're both close to 20 years, so no big surprises there. Adam, TSMC has an announcement that is part of the fruits of the CHIPS Act, I assume.
2: I thought this was heartening for everyone who's been focused on the CHIPS issue from a strategic and national security perspective. The announcement is that... In their second new fab in Arizona, they will be producing at the 3-nanometer node, which is, as I understand it, at present TSMC's cutting-edge node, although they will be moving swiftly to an even more advanced node. And as the understanding until now, I believe, was that TSMC was going to be reserving its very best, latest and greatest, for its home base in Taiwan, and that the American fabs are going to be a step behind. They may still be a step behind, but it will only be one step and not multiple steps So this is good news from the perspective of geographic diversification starting to build out capacity to produce at the highest end for customers like Apple here in the United States. And of course, this is all against the backdrop of a potential Taiwan contingency, whether it's a blockade, whether it's an invasion, the cutoff of chip supplies out of TSMC would be catastrophic for the global economy, catastrophic for for manufacturing of advanced electronic devices, And so this diversification that the CHIPS Act is is helping to spawn has major geopolitical ramifications to it. This is good news. It comes against, as I said, the backdrop of other steps that are being taken, the export controls that the administration recently put out. And so we can see that the United States collectively is finally getting serious. We're not there yet. It's going to take a number of years to build up to the capacity and the diversification that we need. But at least we are pointed in the right direction.
0: And really good news for Phoenix, Arizona, which clearly now the heart of U.S. Well, I have to disagree and,
2: there. I have to disagree there. Oh, Austin, Austin I'll give you a break. Austin has uh, recently attracted a $20 billion uh, investment uh, from Samsung. Of course, our very close allies in South Korea. Uh, Austin also has major players in chip making. Texas, more broadly, has an important presence in this space of things like analog chips. And you can look forward to many cutting-edge research developments coming out of the University of Texas at Austin. In yeah, that, that could
0: be. But, you know, Phoenix, Arizona is almost unique in not having... Floods or volcanoes or tornadoes or hurricanes. There's almost, it's the most boring weather apart from how hot it is in the United States. And that turns out to be really important for chip manufacturing. So, you know, I look forward to Austin being a robust number two to Phoenix. <laughs> we'll
2: never accept it. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, and I just want to uh, stop to acknowledge that uh, one of our regulars on the Cyberlaw Podcast, Dmitry Alperovitch, and one of our occasional interviewees, uh, Chris Krebs, both have achieved the honor of being sanctioned by the Putin government. The only, you know, f- fly in that ointment is they spelled Dmitry Alperovitch's name wrong. You would think that the Russians would be able to get it right, but they they put it in the Latin characters, and they left the T off of his name. So maybe that was a gratuitous insult, but I think he should be proud of it. And as far as I can tell from his tweeting about it, he is. And uh, Adam, the Euro appeasement court rules are out. These are the Justice Department rules about how they're going to provide a quasi-judicial remedy to people who think that the US has violated European principles in carrying out intelligence aimed at them. I didn't see a lot of surprises in there, but you know they're, they're, they certainly plan on actually designating some judges, designating some advocates. Otherwise, it well, I'll let you tell me what else you thought was interesting in that set
2: of rules. I didn't see a lot of surprises in there either. I thought a lot of this was forecast by the executive order itself. For example, the fact that this is going to be limited to U.S. legal tradition, I think is worth foot stomping, even though the United States has now signed on to the necessary and proportionate standard, which of course doesn't come from anywhere in our law. That's going to be interpreted strictly in accordance with U.S. legal tradition I did think it was interesting that the goal is to recruit at least half of the judges who have prior judicial experience. I think that's certainly a laudatory aim. It strikes me, though, that it that is
0: interesting because that means we have a substantial number of retired or resigned judges. I didn't think that was a really big cadre.
2: That was my sentiment, too, that these, these people typically have life tenure. They often don't retire until they're relatively on in years. And of course, it may be difficult to persuade people who have served as life tenured Article 3 full-dress judges to serve on an Article 2 court, which is, of course, is a novelty. But I, I wish them the best. I think it's, a, it's certainly a good intention to have. Uh, and I would add that the, the the idea of having special advocates who are in the courtroom actively arguing for the interest of the person who has allegedly been surveilled is a departure from the FISA amicus role that we've grown somewhat comfortable with in recent years. The amici are not present to advocate for the interests of the person under surveillance. This would be a novelty in our institutions, and it will certainly make it somewhat more difficult, at least rhetorically, to argue against something like a special advocate for U.S. persons or some subset of U.S. persons in the traditional Title I FISA process.
0: I cannot remember. This was borrowed from, I believe, the U.K. approach to uh, complaints about violations. Did the U.K. have advocates for the people who filed the complaints, or did they just have one institutional advocate? My guess is it's more adversarial than the U.K. system that this is, I believe, borrowed from. Okay, last item. Just worth noting that Microsoft attributed a big ransomware attack on Ukraine and Poland to the Russian government which I found striking that we're now casually saying, yeah, Russia's in the ransomware business. I mean, we knew that the North Koreans just needed the money and Russia may be deciding that ransomware serves multiple purposes. They make money off it and they cause chaos in hostile states. But for you know, services like the GRU to be actively running at ransomware is a change in the landscape that we'll have to study for a considerable amount of time. Okay, Chinny, Adam, Nick, thank you for joining us and for extending this well past our usual ending time because it was a lot of fun. If you're listening to this and you've got questions or comments, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a review and I I challenge you to be funnier than we are because it ain't that hard. (laughs) Uh, uh, And if you are, we'll definitely read your stuff on the uh, the podcast. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 430 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I can't help myself.